uh, to the Colossian church. It's, um, it's this idea of, of syncretism, the melding and the combining of these Christian practices, um, philosophies and traditions, and they're just kind of, kind of mixing these things all together into something that is not Christianity. It's not something that they have been taught. And he used the analogy of our present day of like politics. That's kind of the uh, something we can all resonate with. Maybe we're, um, maybe we're wrapped up in that to the degree that we shouldn't be and we identify it too much, um, or maybe we know people, but it seems to be something that we can all uh, understand is this idea of mixing politics and our faith in not such a, a good way. And those things seem like a good idea at the time, um, but they, they easily become distractions. And, and when they become primary in our lives, they can only be distractions, and they can only be empty in our lives. Sam said time and time again the last couple of weeks this phrase that, that these things are great tools that we can avail ourselves of, um, but they're, they're horrible masters. I thought that was really helpful. Um, there are great tools that, we, that help us to mature in our faith, to exercise our faith, to grow in our faith, but they're terrible masters. And I really think that, that this politics is one that is such, like he said, low-hanging fruit that, that resonates with our culture right now, especially when we're in an election year on how that can happen. And in reality, we all know this, there's only one master. Jesus Christ is our only master. He is the only one worthy of being our master, is Jesus Christ our Lord, it's in Him that we abide. It's in Him that we find abundant life. It's in Him we flourish. All these other tools that we pervert and we make primary and mix into our Christianity are only empty and they are distractions to us in our walk of faith. And so we have to focus on Christ and not the things of the world. The question that I'm asking, my, asking myself this week is, is why? Why do we do this? Why do we choose to take good things in our life, useful tools, and turn them into something that they're never intended to be? Why do we do that? If we're found in Christ, why do we use these things as distractions to, in some cases, show the world something that is a perversion of Christianity? It's wicked. Why do we do that? Especially if verse 20 that we read through last week is true, that we've died to the elemental spirits of the world. If that's true of us, then why do we do these things? It's the question that was on my mind this week as I studied this passage, and the answer is that we're complicated people with complicated souls. I read earlier this week as I was studying this, a writer compared our souls to a wormhole. <laughs> That was really good. A multi-dimensional wormhole. He said that our souls, are, that we have because, of our, because we have souls, um, we have outer space inside of us. That's the analogy that he used. Think about that for a minute. That's really true. When was the last time you actually pondered the nature that you have a soul? The fact that you have a soul let alone the nature and the state of your soul. When was the last time you spent time doing that? You don't have to think much about it to know that's a deep subject. No pun intended there, right? You don't have to think about that too long to say, yeah, 
It is a pretty significant thing. It is a pretty profound mystery, our souls. He goes on to say, after talking about our soul as a wormhole, multidimensional outer space inside of, of us, he says, and we think we can manage this with religious pep talks. How deep is our faith? How much do we trust? It doesn't take much to think about our soul, and yet we, we don't spend time thinking about it. We think we can manage it by these little pep talks that we give ourselves or one another. There's a British philosopher, theologian, writer, uh, G.K. Chesterton, and he wrote um, a response to an article allegedly to the London Times. This is in sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote a, a letter to the editor in response to an article they wrote called What's Wrong with the World? Some of you are probably familiar with this. The article was What's Wrong with the World? And he wrote a letter to the editor refuting their conclusion apparently, and it says this, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And that was it. That was the sum total of his response to what's wrong with the world. It's the same idea Paul gets at in Romans chapter 7. I do things I know that are bad, and I avoid things I know that are good. My paraphrase. I can't seem to do the good that I want. I keep on doing evil. He ends saying, what a wretched man I am. We drift quite naturally into the lane of Romans 7, don't we? We easily veer off into it like our car is out of alignment until we hit the rumble strips and then we come back on. Sometimes we don't hit the rumble strips. We sleep through them and we go off into ruts and ditches. And we need some help. Wretched men and women that we are. Romans 7 is an echo it echoes throughout the Bible, and that's what our text is here today. It's an echo of Romans 7. We wake up every day with a troubled soul. Our souls are troubled even when they don't feel like they're troubled because of the distraction of sin and the deceptive nature of our sin. And what's required is for us to, to take a good look at our inner selves. But we live distracted lives, don't we? Right? We don't do this because of the distractions that are around us. Some of them are, are good things, family responsibilities, work responsibilities, but some of them are, are, are you, again, tools that are perverted and not used, social media, television, religion, um, pop religion, YouTube, things like that become distractions in our lives from doing the work we need to look at our inner souls. Well, our, our text today engages us to look at our inner souls to examine the echo of Romans 7, and it encourages us to take it head on here today that we'll read. So I want to ask you to get into the heart space of Romans 7, this idea that we, we fight ourselves. The things that we know we, we are supposed to be doing as believers, we don't. We struggle with. We don't do them. The things we know we don't want to do or aren't supposed to do, we do. We engage them, and we end up at some point saying, wretched man that I am. Hear the echo of Romans 7 today in this passage, but also the echo of hope. I'm going to pray for our time this morning, and then I will begin. We'll begin by reading Colossians 3, 
Father, we need you this morning. We need you to lay open our souls before you. As Matt said in the call to worship, it's not too late for us to submit our souls to the one who has created it and the one who knows it intimately and better than we know it ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that you do the work to expose in our soul, in our hearts, what is necessary this morning. Help us to put away the distractions of the world that we bring into this place to listen to your Spirit and what your Spirit is telling us today. Lord, we thank you and we trust that you will do this work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read this morning, beginning in verse 1. Our text is 5 through 11 of chapter 3, but for consistency, um, not just consistency, but because the first four verses where Sam ended last week, um, those first four verses are fundamentally foundational for our passage today. So read along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked but when, when you were living in them, but now you must put, away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. Do you hear the echo of Romans 7 in there a little bit? As I said, there's also the echo of hope. Think, thinking about this idea of echo, I, I didn't steal it from Rob Rash's church when, when he had the church in Washington, but that's why he called it Echo Church, which I thought was amazing. It was a great name. The echo of the gospel that we are to live out as the family of God. It's a, a brilliant name, appropriate name. We see the hope at the beginning of our reading today. That's the reason I read those first four verses, because they're foundational to what we are going to talk about today. This idea that we are raised with Christ and we are to seek things above, we are to set our minds on things that are above because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. But I want to begin at the end this morning. I want to begin with the last verse of this passage. Verse 11, three words in particular, Christ is all. Christ is all. This is the point of Paul's letter. It's, it's the point of anything that Paul writes. 
It's the, the reason he writes this letter to the Colossian church. It's like Paul is saying, okay, if I wasn't succinct enough by saying that you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, if that's too complicated for you, if that's not clear enough, let me clear it up. Christ is all. That's what he's saying. It's the very thing Paul spent the first two chapters unpacking, particularly gloriously in chapter 2, verses 15 through 23, where he unpacks the preeminence of Christ. It's amazing. He mentions Jesus Christ, or a pronoun of Jesus, 55 plus times in the first two chapters alone in Colossians. That's more than there are verses in those two chapters. Those, those two chapters. So it's, it's amazing. His focus is the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Christ is all. Sometimes we just need to have things oversimplified for us, don't we? Because of the thickness of our skulls. Thankfully, we have thick skulls to protect our brains. But sometimes things can't get in there. Christ is all. We try to be succinct even in our preaching, don't we? We, we put these sayings up, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We have it written on a, on a nice little ceramic pla plaque in our home that Kim will write something on each week when our gospel community shows up. And right now it says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Paul is saying, I'll do you one better. Christ is all. Very simple. So that's where we begin. Christ is all. It's remarkable. Sam alluded to this, I think, last week. It's remarkable just how little space he uses to unpack this heresy. Just a few verses from last week. The overwhelming tone of his letter to the Colossian church is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things, and then how we live that out. Christ is all. And what Paul begins to do here is he starts to kind of conclude his, weather, his letter after we, we turn the corner on about the halfway point, is he starts to get super practical. We love practicality, don't we? Don't we? Don't be, don't be saying you don't love practicality. We love practicality. It's what we want. We understand the Jesus part. And we do. Right? It's like our souls, though. It's a deep, deep well. We don't truly always understand. But we, we get the gospel as believers. We understand it. We're all being sanctified, and we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we're growing in our understanding of the gospel and how to live that out. But, but we get Jesus. We just want to know, how do we need to live? Tell me what I need to do. But we confuse, we get confused ourselves and we often live with an attitude that I do to be. And that's not how it should be. We think we need to do things for God and other in order to be a Christian or to be loved by God or to be loved by other people. Instead of allowing our identity in Christ and our being with God to inform and fuel everything that we do. It's not do to be. It's who I am and I live out of that identity. But we love Colossians 3 because Paul tells us things that we should not do. That's what we're going to hear about this week. And then next week he tells us things that we should do. And he uses the language of putting on and putting off in verse 9 and 10. He says, seeing to it, uh, seeing that you have put off the old self 
or seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul provides us with a couple of lists in our passage this morning, and we love lists, don't we? Right? Especially when they tell us what to do and not what to do. We love lists. It's like we've hit the practical jackpot today with these lists of things that we should not be doing. And there's some symmetry. We love symmetry too, don't we? We love when there's contrasts and comparisons and, and there's, there's lists and symmetry and there's these five vices or sins in, in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. The second list is in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And we'll see another list next week. A list of virtues instead of vices. But the question is why? Why the list to begin with? What's the point of the list here? One reason is that Paul is showing us what happens when the gospel is not primary in our lives and we begin to, to believe lies and mix in other things. We have to remember what's going on in the Colossian church with this, this heresy. Paul holds up the supremacy of Christ and then he gives some, some time to this heresy and he says this is the result of what you believe are these things, these types of things that, that I list out in these two verses. This is the consequence of mixing in this stuff to true faith, true Christianity. So that's one reason. The second is, is Paul is challenging us here today in this text. He's challenging us to faithful obedience in everyday living in the context of of Christian community in the context of our church. There's a, a challenge there that we're going to see from Paul because this letter is written, remember, to a specific church to be circulated among other churches that is preached in a context of a local church today and I trust other places today as well. Churches that struggle with belief that affect the community and their struggle with belief deeply affected the Colossian community. Scholars have done the hard work of translating the original language and, and the, the, the biblical and the cultural context, and they classify these ten sins, these two lists, as uh, verse 5, uh, uh, the classification of sexual sins or sinful desires, and the, the second set in verse 8 as sins of interpersonal relationships. And each one of those lists, each one of those lists of five, has an imperative to it or a command. Paul says about verse 5, Put them to death. And he says about verse 8, put them away. Put to death what is earthly in you. It's linked to the fact, again, that we are already dead. That's why he says that here. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. But the foundation is verse 3. For you've died already. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, I want to stop for just a second. Just think about that verse for a minute. It's one of the reasons that we say, when we say Jesus' family mission, it's one of the many reasons and one of the most profound that we say Jesus, wrapping our lives around Jesus. It's even more than that. We're, we're hidden with Him in God. It's a verse that has been really on my heart for a couple of months. I've 
you've noticed maybe I've, I've kind of woven that in with the greeting time or the announcement time when we talk about Jesus. I've mentioned this verse before. Some of you may remember or not. But, but it's been on my heart for a long time. And when I read it again this week, here's what came to mind. This is a bit of an aside. But I, I said to myself, what a sublime verse. And then I'm like, do I even know what that word means? Do I even know what sublime is? Would I use that in public? And so I looked it up. It says, sublime is tending to inspire awe, usually because of elevated qualities of beauty, nobility, grandeur, or transcendent excellence. So yes, this is a sublime verse. I stand by that, and I will use that in public, because it is sublime. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let that resonate with your soul. You are dead So put these things to death. Putting these things to death is a call to let the old man that's already died when we confessed Christ and were baptized be dead. It's a call to let the the old man in us be dead. Remember, when we baptize someone, we say you are buried with Christ and you are risen to the newness of life. Put these things to death because you are already dead and you now live from your new identity as a new person in Christ. Put away then is this idea of getting rid of. It can be thought of in terms of packing away your clothes. And whenever Paul uses the language, he does it in a couple of places in his writing of putting away. Whenever he uses that term, he always uses the contrasting verb to then put something on. Putting off and putting on. Now, of course, we know this isn't an exhaustive list of sins, these these ten sins. What Paul is ultimately getting at here is he's describing these manifestations of our heart that worship something other than Jesus. That's why I started talking about our soul, because he's talking not just about about the, the acts of these sins, like Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 about, about lust. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the soul. He's, it's getting at this idea. These are manifestations of our hearts that ultimately worship other idols. This church is mixing in Christian beliefs and practices with other philosophies and worldly practices. Again, it's an echo of Romans 7. And it's, it shines a light on the complexity of of our soul. So whether our sins are the variety of sexual immorality or whether our sins are the nature of interpersonal relationships, uh, they have something very significant in common. Number one is that those things incur the wrath of a holy God. We cannot, we cannot be divorced of the fact that God hates sin, right? And as we grow in our understanding of the holiness of God, which is his hatred of our sin. And as we grow in the understanding of our soul and the depth and the depravity of our souls, what becomes primary then is Jesus Christ. That's when the gospel really flourishes in those two realities. That's the first thing that those sins have in common. The second thing is they create great disunity in the body of Christ, in the church, in the local church. Again, context of the letter. That's what it's, that's what it's doing in this particular church, in, in uh, uh, the, the Colossian church. 
So my prayer for us is that we would be inviting the Holy Spirit this morning to use the Word of God like the double-edged sword that it is, that it would pierce our souls, that it would discern our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and move each one of us powerfully to confession and repentance and turn us back to the Father who loves us and to one another. Because the Gospel is a reconnecting of us to our Father God, but it's also a reconciliation to one another. We we, we need not to forget that. This teaching that Paul has of putting off and putting on, he uses elsewhere in Scripture, as I said, but the foundation is always that the truth that we have died and we've been raised with Christ and we're exhorted to seek things that are above, we are to set our minds on things that are above, that we are hidden with Christ in God. Here's the danger. This isn't a cloud, this isn't a head in the clouds religion, right? This isn't just because we're seeking things above, seeking things in heaven, we are not supposed to be living this religion in the clouds. This isn't monkery, right? This isn't climbing a mountain to find your peace. We live in the here and now. We're all aware of that because we're breathing. We live in the here and the now. Our race will one day be over, but as long as you're breathing, you're still running the race. Right now, today, this new self that we are to put on is in a state of becoming. That's sanctification. It's in a state of becoming. Colossians 3.10 says, Our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians 4 says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Romans 12.2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 2 Corinthians 4 says that do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You ever see the bumper sticker that says, be patient with me, God's not done with me yet. That's actually good theology. And this gets to the the heart of the matter for us this morning. We live a life of tension as Christians, don't we? Right? You guys feel the tension of your life every single day. We live in tension, and we don't like tension. Does anyone like tension here? Anybody brave enough to raise their hand and say, not a tension, but tension? We don't like tension. We tend to shy away and do whatever we can do to get away from tension. It's why we, la- we like practical lists. We think they'll remove the tension. We think they'll remove the doubt, the frustration, the confusion. We think that the more that we have clearly defined goals and expectations and boundaries, then all the tension is going to go away. Does it? No, it doesn't. Those are great tools. Don't hear me wrong. Those are great tools. As Sam said, they're great tools, but they're terrible masters. We set these things up to think that they're more than they are. And I'm persuaded that sometimes God intentionally intervenes in the goals and the expectations and the boundaries that we create for the purpose of cultivating greater dependency on Him. I think He does that. 
And when we experience goal lines that are moved and expectations that are unmet and blurred or obliterated boundaries, guess what exists in the midst of all that is tension. But that's also where our Lord and Savior lives, is in those moments. He never promised us that this life was going to be a bed of roses. We're called to die to ourselves because we're dead. But Christ is with us in the tension, and we have to see Him, and we have to pursue Him, and we have to love Him in that. We all live in this tension, and if I can describe it in a little bit more detail, it's the tension of the already, but the not yet. Right? We, we live in a time when our old self has not yet been finally defeated and destroyed, Right? The old realm continues to exist and exercise influence over us who have unredeemed bodies right now. This is one of Paul's foundational theological concepts, these, the idea of the two realms. Right? The first realm of living in, is in living in opposition to God that's rooted in the sin of Adam, the old man. That's the old man. When I say old man, that's what I'm talking about. That's why I may not always say old man and old woman. Right? I'm not trying to be politically correct. Adam, the old man. living Realm one is living in opposition to God that's rooted in our original sin, the old man characterized by sin and death. It's Romans 7. Realm number two is the new realm rooted in the new man, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection that's characterized by a life of righteousness and abundant flourishing. That's what he has done. And Paul teaches us how to live this life of tension by, by putting off and putting on. And, and here's kind of what this looks like, um, using the analogy of putting clothes away, right? We're to take off the old self, our old sinful actions. It's like taking off an old, nasty, musty coat. Some of us have old, nasty, musty coats that we need to get rid of. Some of us have given them to churches on the streets and we should have thrown them away instead because they're too nasty and musty that the homeless will not wear them either. Nasty. Thank you. One, one laugh. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate that. That's not a dig on anybody, by the way. Um, but we take off this old, musty, nasty jacket. But the thing is, we all have something like that in our lives, right? Something that stinks. Maybe a nice familiar pair of slippers that we have that really are stinky and our, our, our spouses or our friends are saying, you need to put those things away, right? For you students, some of you I know probably have blankets from when you're kids and you like to sleep with them and they're nasty and they need to be put away or at least washed once in a while. But it's hard because our sin patterns are habituated and by nature, we don't think about habits much, do we? That's why they're called habits. They're in our subconscious. And sometimes those habits can become crippling addiction. And sometimes that's when we really are aware of them, but not always. Paul tells us then to be renewed in the spirit of our minds to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, we have to force these habits from the back of our minds to our forefronts so that we can think actively about these thoughts day to day so we can see the corruption and the effect that they have on us and we can willfully take action against those 
patterns of sin in our lives. How do we live in this tension by putting off and putting on, taking off this musty old jacket and putting on the righteous robes of Jesus Christ? Well, there's a a parallel passage to what we read today. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of points from that. But in Ephesians 4, it's where Paul unpacks the idea of unity in the body of Christ. For the sake of time, I won't read it. It's the one that begins, he gave apostles, he gave, he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. That one that's familiar. It's all about unity in the church. But what I want to do is point out some reasons that Paul talks about this, uh, these people, and why they are there. He says it's for the purpose of uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He says it's to build up the body of Christ. They're in place to, to help you attain unity and maturity in your faith, ultimately to grow up into the head of the church who is Christ, and finally to build themselves up, the church, in love. But he also makes a comment, and he says, some of you have become callous, and you've given yourselves over to other things. And then he says, that's not how you learn Christ. That's not how you learned who Jesus is and how to follow Him. And this is, this is key for us today. I think there's some principles of living here that we learn of how to, how to live out our faith. There's four principles that we can learn here, both in this Ephesians passage and in our passage today. Principles I want to draw out and I want to articulate for you today. These speak to how we can put off and put on while living in the tension of the already and the not yet. The first one is we got to want this. You got to want to take off that musty jacket. It becomes way too comfortable. It becomes way too familiar. It becomes our security blanket, literally sometimes. We got to want to take these things off. I think about the prodigal son here. You know, it's the familiar story, but, but as I was reading it this week, um, you know, he, he, he takes his father's inheritance, insult to his dad, he leaves, he spends it all, and he ends up feeding pigs, longing to eat what the pigs were eating. And then the text says, when he came to his senses, wouldn't you love God to unpack that? What did that look like? What did it look like for the prodigal son to come to his senses? We don't know, but when he came to his senses, he said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father. He reached the point where he was willing to change, but not just willing to change, he was willing to take action. He was actually willing to do something about his circumstances, but I would love to know what it means to come to his senses and what that meant and how he perhaps wrestled with God. So we have to be willing, to, we have to want this when it comes to putting off and putting on. What action can you take? Some of us, some of us, it's kind of what Matt said at the beginning, some of us need to get on our faces and just ask God to move in our hearts. Say, God, just move in my heart and show me my sin. Or give me a desire to fight and put that sin to death. Maybe for some of us, for the very first time, we have to ask God to show us the reality of our sin and for the Spirit to shine that spotlight in the dark places of our lives that we don't even know sin exists. Maybe for the very, very first time, 
and literally take the veils from our eyes so that we can see the truth of the gospel. So we need a desire for change and action. Number two, the second thing grows out of the first, and that's that we can't do this alone. The driving force here, these letters again are written in the context of community to churches. The driving force here is deep community and honest discipleship. When we consider that our souls are like wormholes in outer space and that we cannot manage them on our own. By the way, the fact that you're here today really is a testimony that you realize you can't do this alone. You're living proof that you believe that very thing. I cannot do this alone. doesn't mean that we, we always get it. We don't. I don't. But the fact that you're here today, be encouraged by that. Because like Sam said, for some of you it may have been a joy. For others it may have been drudgery. I've been there. So we have to begin to think about, well, we have to realize that we can't do this alone. The driving force is deep community and honest discipleship. And we have to think of community and discipleship as a means of grace that God has put in our lives for the purpose, get this, of soul maintenance. Not original with me, something I read this week, something incredibly beneficial, a book that I just started to read. I'll share some more thoughts with that when when I finish the book. I think it's going to be really good for us. But that's how we need to think of community and discipleship, as a means of grace from God that He's put in our lives for the purpose of soul maintenance. Gospel community is not a social club. And discipleship isn't just hanging out. These are That happens. Social interactions happen in gospel community, yes and amen. Hanging out happens in discipleship, yes and amen. But that's not the reason for them. They're a means of God's grace in our lives for soul maintenance. Some of us have grown callous to that. Some of us have grown callous to to this and other areas in our lives. and So we need to evaluate what our next steps are. Are. For some, it might, mean, it might mean that we need to give someone the right in our lives to tell us the hard truth in love. That might be our next step. Remember, our sins become habituated. They're blind spots, right? They're in our subconscious. And so we need, first of all, the Holy Spirit to dig them up, but we also, the, God uses other people in our lives, uses the Holy Spirit in our lives through other people to do that. We have to be willing and to be open to receive that and to ask. Those are scary steps to take. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's easy. It's not. But perhaps that's the next step for some of us. How can we grow? How can we begin to put some of these things off if we don't know about them? Right? Blind spots are called blind spots because they're blind spots. We can't see them. It's pretty simple, pretty profound, right? Paul says in our text in verse 9, don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, don't lie to one another. Don't sit face to face with someone that you're in discipleship with, that you're in gospel community with. Don't lie to them. may not be the context. I'm not saying you have to share everything in the night you have a GC. But have someone in your life that you are sharing some things with on a very honest level. And again, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not. 
But God wants to do that in us. God wants to do that in us. Third, this grows out of the second. We remind one another of the gospel. This is what Paul is doing in his letter. It's what he does in all of his letters, right? So if, if you're unsure of, of how to, to bring the gospel to bear, just read Paul's letters. Go through them. Study them. Read what he's, what he's telling these churches and these people that how they need the good news of the gospel. It's not good advice we are to be giving one another. It is good news. So we must become fluent in the gospel. Gospel-centered is a nice buzzword that we've had for quite a while. And, and sometimes we kind of, you know, poo-poo it. There's some really good, solid material that help us to become gospel-fluent. The last thing for how we can put off and put on while living in the tension of the already and the not yet, and this is really important. If you don't hear anything else today except for this one thing, please hear this. In this room, in our gospel communities, in our discipleship relationships, in this church, Red Tree Church, listen closely, we are all on the same team. I cannot stress that enough. Guys, we're on the same team. This is verse 11 of Colossians 3. Here, there is not Greek, there is not Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. When we said amen and I love Jesus and I serve Him and we were baptized in Christ, we have the same unifying Holy Spirit. And we are here in our church to love God, to serve each other, to make disciples. We are on the same team, you guys. The walls we erect out of our sinfulness are torn down by the gospel. The gospel removes barriers and boundaries. There's a very simple biblical principle that I was reminded of just this week. And it's this. Whoever seeks good finds favor, but evil comes to one who searches for it. That's Proverbs 11, 27. All of that to say, we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. When we engage in this, putting off and putting on, and we do it in these ways, we have to give one another the benefit of the doubt, realizing we're on the same team. Assume the best in the other person. If you seek them in goodwill, you're going to receive it. But if you're looking for things that aren't there, guess what? You're going to find them. And hurt is going to happen. And if it doesn't feel like they have your best interests in mind because that's going to happen because we're broken, sinful people. But if, if it seems like, like they don't have your best interest in mind, ask them for clarification because that's what good teammates do. I don't mean to be like cutesy with the whole teammate language. I hate that stuff. But it's true. We're on the same team. I did read a book that said church is a team sport, though. Um, anyway. We have to give one another the benefit of the doubt, but, but, but when, when someone it doesn't seem like they have our best interests in mind, um, lovingly say, hey man, what's going on? This is how I receive this. You may give them a chance to say, oh, dear sister, 
dear brother, that is not at all what I meant. I am so sorry. Thank you for pointing out that blind spot because I didn't see it because it's a blind spot. So thank you for telling that to me. I really appreciate that because I'm trying to love you and that did not look like love and that's not what I intended. We're on the same team. Here's how I want to end out today. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We wake up to Romans 7 every day. The tension that we live in the, uh, the acknowledgement, if we're honest, that we struggle. Things we know we should be doing, we don't do. Things that we don't want to do, we do. There's this, this wretchedness of our soul that usually at some point, in some, in some way, shape, or form, we're like, I'm a wretched person. I need help. The frustration, the anxiety, the depression, the lack of will. We often engage in the flesh before our feet hit the floor in the morning. Amen? But here's what we can't forget. That living right besides Romans 7 is Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's the message of the Gospel. Just like Romans 7 reverberates throughout Scripture, so does Romans 8. And it's beautiful. The soul is a complicated thing. We naturally slide into a Romans 7 mindset. That's easy for us to do. But as early and as often in the day as we possibly can, we have to bring the truth of Romans 8 to bear. But we have to be willing. We have to realize we can't do this alone. We have to do it by means of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have to realize that we are on the same 
team. We are the bride of Christ, you guys. We are the bride of Christ. I'm looking as many of you in the eye as I can. We are the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is beautiful. Don't you want to represent him well? Don't you want to encourage one another when we don't? I do. I need that encouragement. I need it because I pervert the bride of Christ. I do. And I need you to speak into me and say, you're not. You did this thing. You said this thing that doesn't represent what's going on. Give me an opportunity. Give each other an opportunity so that Christ can be made known. Because there are walls in this room that we are leaving and there's a whole mess of people out there that have no hope. And they need to mix it up with us and we need to mix it up with them and show them the beauty of the bride of Christ. I'm going to pray for our time. Guys, you can come back up, band. I'm going to pray for our time. Our, our, for, for our, well, let me pray. God, we need you to do the work in our hearts that we've talked about today. None of this comes naturally and none of it is easy. And if there's anything I said that makes it seem like it's easy, Lord, I pray that, that we would all forget it because it's not. It's a supernatural work. And we need the Spirit to animate us, just like you did the very first time when we were like a dead man on the bottom of the ocean, wrinkled and just completely covered in stuff, and we were dead. And we had no capability of responding to you until your Spirit came and shone a light and showed us our brokenness, and we then could respond to the Spirit, and he lifted us up out of the muck. And he allowed us to take off the musty coat, to put on the righteous robe, and to praise you, and then to go out into the world and tell that good news. Father, we need that. And we pray that you would cultivate in us a desire to put off whatever it is we need to put off. Today it's one thing, tomorrow it may be something else. Maybe it's a besetting thing in our lives. But show us, Lord. And then when you show us, give us the courage to take action. And like the prodigal son, Lord, let us realize we love, we run into the loving arms of a father who's pursuing us. This is the truth of the gospel, and we thank you for it, Lord. Amen. Guys, we're going to have a time to respond. We have uh, a couple of prayer counselors. Jesse is one of our prayer counselors. Kim Tanell, they're going to be in the room. As you, and again, I, I, I said this for the fourth or fifth time, I know this isn't, this isn't easy, this isn't natural, um, and I'm not so um, um, arrogant to think that it's going to happen today, but, but this is a space for you to start to at least think about some of this stuff, maybe. Confess to God. Ask Him to, 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 to bring up some of this stuff in your life. And, and, and perhaps the Spirit then would prompt you to go and, and have one of these guys pray over you. Or you can come to Sam or me or one of the elders. I'll be up here as well. And after a time of response and prayer, then uh, we're going to sing a song. And then after that song, I'll come back up and we will we'll open up communion and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? So let's do that. Let's, let's do some work with God um, where you're at, avail yourself of prayer, and then we'll sing, and then we'll take communion after that.